The title for today's sermon is Funny Little Clown and is taken from Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 31. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your word this morning. We pray, Lord, as we spend these few minutes together looking at the life of our dear Savior, that we would be reminded of the tremendous cost he bore for the sin of mankind. Thank you, Lord, that he did so substitutionarily, dying in our stead. Help us now to live transformed lives based on this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you all know, I hail from the north side of the city of Chicago. And it used to be that if you asked a foreigner about what they knew about Chicago, they would talk about the gangsters or Al Capone. (coughs) But not anymore. All of that has changed in the past few years. Now Chicago has become known as the murder capital of the United States. The one crime that puts Chicago on the map as the murder capital is probably the infamous serial killer, uh, John Wayne Gacy. This horrible human being came to be known as the killer clown since he performed at many political fundraisers, at uh, charity functions, parades, and even children's birthday parties. He would dress up as Pogo the Clown, a macabre character he had made up, and you you can see that in the pictures behind me. Some assert that the Joker from the Batman movie was based on Pogo the Clown. If you look closely at the pictures, you'll see he's standing next to the then wife of the President of the United States. Gacy went on to be convicted of 33 murders of male individuals between the ages of 14 and 22. He committed these crimes in the early 1970s. All of these murders took place in a 900-square-foot home in Norwood Park, Illinois. Gacy was able to lure his victims to his home with the promises of either a job or free drugs. He disposed of the bodies of his victims in the crawl space of his home, burying them there, or unceremoniously dumping them into the filthy Displains River, akin to our own notorious Green River killer here in Seattle. Now, all of this is surely awful, but what, it makes, it, what makes it worse for Sue and myself is the last victim was Robert Peast, a 14-year-old son of a fellow church member. I can re- remember vividly the Wednesday evening that we went to church in December of 1977, the weekly prayer meeting. And the congregation was asked to pray for Robert, who was missing. His mother reported that he hadn't returned from a job interview with a local contractor at the Jewel food store just down the street. That contractor turned out to be Gacy, and Robert Peast was never seen alive again. After a four-year trial, Gacy was convicted of murder and sentenced to die. However, the criminal justice system is as slow as molasses here in America, as you know, and Gacy spent the next 14 years on death row making a mockery out of justice, in my opinion. Then on a beautiful night in May of 1994, the clown was executed by lethal injection at the Stateville Penitentiary in Joliet. The question for many is whether this evil man really deserved to die. Well, 
I guess that depends on whom you ask. The death penalty, or capital punishment, is controversial. So what, just what is capital punishment? Well, my go-to Bible, Wikipedia, uh, refers to the legal process by which a man is put to, by which a person is put to death by the state as punishment for a crime committed against society. Capital punishment has been applied in the past to a variety of offenses, including murder, rape, and many others. The term capital comes from the Latin term capitalis, which means regarding the head. That's a reference to the style of execution that used to be uh, unknown, called beheading, which seems to have come back in vogue these days. Historically, all societies have exercised some form of capital punishment. But normally, the death sentence was at first preceded by some horrific torture on the individual. Such executions were public events that were intended to curtail the committing of such offenses again. As I said, the implementation of the death penalty is controversial, especially here in the United States. It's been the subject of numerous court battles and 162 Hollywood movies. Maybe you've heard of some of them. Dead Man Walking, The Green Mile, Twelve Angry Men, Paths of Glory, Too Young to Die, or a myriad of others. I'd like to show you the anti-capitalistic uh, capital punishment propaganda that's put out by the Death Penalty Information Center. So please watch. Public support for the death penalty is at its lowest level in 40 years, and that lack of support is reflected in the use of the death penalty across the country. The 2013 year-end report, issued on December 19th by the Death Penalty Information Center, shows that by almost every measure, the death penalty declined in the United States in 2013. The number of death sentences imposed remained near the record low. Many prominent death penalty states, such as South Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, and Louisiana, had no new sentences this year. For only the second time in 19 years, there were fewer than 40 executions. That is less than half the number carried out in 1999, when the number of executions peaked in the modern era. Only nine states carried out executions. The majority came from just two states, Texas and Florida. Maryland abolished the death penalty this year, becoming the sixth state in six years to do so. This brings the total number of states without the death penalty to 18. Mistakes continued to plague the death penalty. In October, Reginald Griffin of Missouri became the 143rd person exonerated from death row. At the time of his trial, prosecutors withheld critical evidence about another suspect. Griffin spent 30 years in prison, mostly on death row. Concerns over innocence, unfairness, and other issues have caused leaders from across the political spectrum to voice concerns about the death penalty. Mary-Kate Carey, a conservative commentator and former speechwriter for George H.W. Bush, joined a growing number of conservatives questioning capital punishment when she said, Times have changed, and it's time for conservatives to get on the right side of the death penalty argument. One can oppose the death penalty and still be in favor of a tough, affordable, accurate, and fair criminal justice system. The history of the death penalty shows that its problems are not easily fixed, and new ones are almost certain to arise. It is likely that the declining use of the death penalty will continue as more state legislatures consider repealing what has become a very expensive and unpredictable punishment. To learn more about the death penalty and read our full year-end report, visit deathpenaltyinfo.org. It's not my purpose to convert you to be a death 
penalty advocate or vice versa. Um, that was a very well done commercial by the Death Penalty Information Center. But I put my trust in the Word of God, not, not in some advocates for a position. And the Bible clearly teaches that despite its misuse, despite its problems, the death penalty is given to the state as a implementation of justice, and the state is to wield the sword with uh, justice in mind. The problem is, in America and in other places around the world, uh, the process is broken. It's the process that needs to be fixed. Jesus, we could say, was put to death wrongly. And uh, so that's what we look at this morning. In biblical times, when a criminal was condemned to death, he was immediately taken to the place of execution by four Roman soldiers who forced him to carry his crossbeam that was laid flat across his shoulders to the place where he would die. They would take the longest possible route that they could with one guard walking in front of him bearing the placard that listed his crimes upon it. This was to warn others who might be thinking of committing such crimes to not to do so. In Luke's recording of this event, he omits any reference to the crown of thorns that Jesus was forced to wear or the taunting that happened by the Roman soldiers. But then Luke expands on the way that Jesus proceeded to the place of death called the place of the skull. So with that as our introduction, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, where we pick up in verse 26. Here's the death penalty. Here the death penalty is being used upon an innocent man, which we would all abhor. This is capital punishment at its worst. By the way, this text can be found on page 1055 of your pew Bibles, if you need to use one. Chapter 23 of the book of Luke, and we begin with verse 26, which says this, When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and they placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. So let's examine the principles involved in this passion play, which takes place in Jerusalem in 33 AD. And looking at this verse, we see the first question we need to ask is, Who is the they? They led him away. Who is the they referring to in verse 26? Is this referring to the Roman soldiers, the temple police, or could this even possibly be the Sanhedrin? I assume from this text and from the other texts, uh, 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 gospel writers, that this is the Roman soldiers. Pilate put them in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. So Jesus is being led by one Roman soldier and surrounded by three others, and he's trudging his way through the city of Jerusalem, carrying upon his soul, on his shoulders the heavy cross beam. He is weakened from the events that have taken place in the past 24 hours in his life, and he finds it very difficult to manage the weight of that beam. After all, you'll recall he spent an emotional few hours saying goodbye to his disciples in the upper room, which was followed by his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane by Judas. Then he experienced the mental agony of being separated from his fathers. That was faced by being arrested. That was followed by being arrested. And then he faced six so-called trials, which included the mockery by his Jewish fellow leaders, Peter's denials, 
Pilate's pronouncement of the death sentence, and then he was scourged before he was abused by these soldiers. So now he's staggering his way to the place of execution, which is outside the city and up a steep set of stone stairs and then to a hill, all on uneven surfaces as he carries his heavy crossbeam. Finally, when he's just about to the city gates, he collapses. Now, the execution would take place, by the way, outside the city gates, so the city would not be defiled, because that would make the city unclean. And it was customary for all the condemned to carry their crossbeams, so this was not unusual for Jesus to do it. And they would have their hands tied to the crossbeam on their shoulders. It was a hideous sight, a terrible sight. It was pathetic to watch. And as was customary with the Romans, the individual to be executed was stripped naked. But because they were in Judea and Rome didn't want problems, they gave in to the Jewish modesty laws by offering a covering of the genital area. So the victim is forced to walk all this way, carrying this heavy crossbeam, humiliated by his, his uh, being being seen, and uh, the people either crying or hurling insults as him. All of this was done by Rome to force people to see that they were in charge and for them to submit to their authority. The crossbeam, as you can see in the pictures behind me, called the pitablumum, was extremely heavy, weighing 700 pounds, and it was used again and again, over and over. Humanly speaking, it was a wonder how Jesus could possibly even carry it after the evening that he had had, which I've already discussed. Presumably, Jesus was a very fit man, having been a carpenter his whole life. And so this weakness that he had was not because he was not fit, but because of the experience of being beaten and cruelly treated. Usually, crucified victims could take up to three days to die. But Jesus died within hours of being placed on the cross. So many have asked what accounted for this. One eminent criminologist has suggested that the condition... Uh, of Jesus had deteriorated over uh, time since he was being uh, beaten in the garden and beaten uh, in the palaces during his trials. According to the gospel records outside of Luke, Jesus was uh, the subject of many direct blows to his chest and uh, face. And many suspect that this caused internal bleeding and possibly even a bruised heart. And uh, this would have severely limited his stamina. A person beaten in such a manner would have then begun to breathe, breathe heavily, lacked energy, and suffered weaknesses in their extremities from a lack of oxygen. And this would be fatal without treatment. So in the opinion of one criminologist, uh, Jesus probably died from a bruised or a so-called broken heart rather than the crucifixion itself. Perhaps the injury was suffered from the blows that he uh, received when the Guards were mocking him, as you would call, and asking him, who is he? We just don't know. That's the truth. We don't know when this happened or how this happened. But we do know that Jesus was unable. He has been weakened so much that he could not bear the, the weight of the crossbeam. So as he stumbled under the load, the lead centurion understood that he was not going to be able to go on, and he tapped a man on the shoulder who happened to be in the crowd. His name was Simon. And he ordered him to pick up the crossbeam and to carry it. Now, Simon had just come into Jerusalem. We learned that he came in from the country. 
He might not even have heard about the events that were taking place. Maybe he didn't know about the trial of Jesus or that there was a crucifixion going to take place. He certainly didn't know the man whose cross he would end up bearing. But uh, he was picked arbitrarily out of the crowd by the Romans to carry the cross, which he did. Simon had this dubious honor, if you want to call it that, of carrying an instrument of death to the place of execution upon which Jesus would be placed. The truth is that anyone on any ordinary day in their life can find their day quickly interrupted and transformed by such a moment which will change them forever, just as it did this man Simon. Here he was, just coming in to go to the prayer meeting at the temple at 9 o'clock in the morning, when all of a sudden he's forced to be part and parcel of an execution, carrying the crossbeam for Jesus. Well, Simon was unknown before he was penned and placed in Scripture by the Scripture writers. But what we know of him is that he was a Jew, part of the dysphoria, and we learn from his name that he lived in Cyrene, or what is modern-day Libya, perhaps Benghazi. Um, but for just a moment, what I'd like you to do, to, uh, to do in your own heart and mind, is try to imagine what it must have been like to be Simon. Here he'd come to Jerusalem to fulfill a lifetime's ambition to worship at the temple in the holy city. Something, maybe he wanted to scratch off his bucket list as a Jew. Can you imagine it? He stayed overnight outside of the city, in the burbs, if you will, because there probably wasn't housing enough available for all the people that came for the, uh, for the feast that was being celebrated. And uh, people of all stripes opened their homes during these days to pilgrims that would come for the holiday. Perhaps, we don't know, maybe Simon lodged with a friend or a relative that lived in the area of Jerusalem. But he did travel 800 miles across the ocean from Africa by boat to celebrate the Passover of his God in Jerusalem. Now, here he was, being humiliated by the hated Romans, forced to carry the cross of this convict whom he didn't know and never heard of. He must have had many emotions. I suggest to you that he's probably filled with hatred and bitterness towards the Romans. They were the enemy of the Jews. And perhaps he even had ill feelings towards the criminal who had involved himself in this whole affair. Why, even when he picked up the crossbeam, he found that his face was smeared with blood. His neck was covered with the blood of this man, and it got on his Sabbath day's robe. Can you imagine? What would he tell his family? How would she get the blood out of it? All of this had the earmarks of a catastrophe, a disaster for him, in this opportunity that he had seized to come to the city of Jerusalem, a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Simon. And now here he was walking behind a man who would die for the sins of the whole world, and he didn't even know that. I find it quite interesting, quite revealing, that this man named Simon took the place of another man, Simon, who had promised that he would go to prison with Jesus and would even die for him. But he was nowhere to be found to carry the cross of the Savior. This unknown Simon was simply trying to get to the prayer meeting at the temple when fate intervened to rearrange his schedule. Now he was on his way to this horrid place of death. In the other Gospels, we read of Simon's families being impacted by this event. 
In Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, we learn that Simon had two sons named Alexander and Rufus. And then over in one of the epistles in the book of Romans in chapter 16 and verse 13, we read that Paul greets a man named Rufus that is living in Rome and attending the church uh, that is there. It's suggested by many that Alexander and Rufus were the sons of Simon and that after he, their father, had carried the crossbeam of Jesus, that his life had forever been changed. The implication is that Rufus and his family and Alexander and the wife of Simon became well-known in the church of Jesus Christ. We find that in the historical record, though not in Scripture. So I don't know what the truth is, but it's really nice to think, it's wonderful to think and speculate that this man was forever changed by his experience in meeting Christ, even on this deadly morning. Now we look at the incident as recorded by Luke only. This is not found in the other Gospels, beginning in verse 27, when it tells us that Jesus was followed by a large crowd of people, and specifically of women who were mourning and lamenting him. As we've seen in our past studies of the Gospel of Luke and other Bible books, it was common in the first century for deaths to be accompanied by professional mourners who would wail the death of the deceased as they made their way to their place of internment. These mourners were usually women who would cry out and lament the passing of the deceased. This is still quite common if you see a death of a well-known Israelite or Arab in the Middle East. Uh, The people still wail and cry. These crowds of people certainly felt sympathy for Jesus. He was a Jew. And as he passed by, he was battered and bloodied by his treatment at the hands of the Romans. The women in the crowd of mourners lamented his terrible fate at the hands of their enemies. They would have been smiting their breasts and crying out in pain. Now, you might have thought that everyone, by the presentation of some of the gospel writers, was clamoring for the death of Jesus, for his execution. After all, didn't a large crowd just cry, crucify him, crucify him? Well, yes, that's true. There was a crowd at the judgment hall crying out for that. But not everybody in Jerusalem wanted to see Jesus die. In fact, there was a lot of people who weren't gathered at the judgment hall because that was on one street in a small localized area, which, as I suggested to you last week, was filled with people who were friends of Barabbas and maybe the Sanhedrin who had a motive to see Jesus died. Many of the folks in Jerusalem admired Jesus, and many believed in him as the promised Messiah. They would have been beside themselves with grief at this terrible turn of events. So here we see him being followed by a multitude of people who are noisily demonstrating their grief. And Luke singles out the women for special mention. I do not believe that these were the professional mourners. These were women who were deeply and profoundly affected by his suffering. Please understand that these are not the same women who followed Christ as his disciples. These are not women uh, that we would confuse with the names such as Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and his others. These women supported Jesus and the twelve out of their own resources. The women that Luke speaks of here as mourning in Jerusalem were different women. And in fact, there's suggestions in the historical record that these were well-off women who took it upon themselves to minister to the needs of the condemned. You see, in Jerusalem, hundreds if not thousands of people 
were condemned and crucified. So a group of well-off women had come together to provide the victims of the Romans with a drink that was meant to sedate and to lessen the pain. This drink made of wine and frankincense was offered as an act of mercy by these women given to the Romans who would then supply it to those people who died on the cross. In Zechariah chapter 10, and excuse me, chapter 12 and verse 10, we read this, which is predictive of Christ's sufferings. It says there, Zechariah writing, I will pour out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me, and it's capitalized, meaning Christ, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, capitalized, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. And there was. These women in this crowd mourn at the ill treatment that Jesus was receiving. The women wept bitterly, not only over Jesus' death, impending death, but the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. It's been pointed out many times that Jesus' treatment of women was par excellence in his culture. Jesus was not at war with women like the Republicans are today. Jesus was not an enemy of women, but their greatest friend. Jesus, by his teaching, elevated women to a place that they'd never dreamed of even holding especially under Judaism, and for certain not under Islam. Jesus dignified women. He treated them as co-equals. Now, looking at verse uh, 28, we see that Jesus turned to the women of Jerusalem, and he says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. In his battered, beaten condition, Jesus still has the wherewithal to be concerned about others, in particular these women. He says to the daughters of Jerusalem, by the way, that would exclude all the other people, women from Galilee, the women from other parts of the nation or outside, those who were visiting. He's speaking directly to the women of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says this, weep not for me. And he says, weep for yourselves. Jesus is speaking to them because it is they that will suffer at the hands of the Romans in just a few years. The holy city will come underneath the wrath of Emperor Titus. He makes it clear he doesn't want their sympathy, but they have his sympathies. So, this shouldn't be under, misunderstood as some have as a rebuke by Jesus. It's not. He wasn't seeking for them to stop mourning him, but he was seeking for them to understand their own place in this world. His fate was sealed. Rather than thinking about his own fate, he was thinking about theirs. They still had time. They lived in a doomed city. Uh, the people of Jerusalem were literally dead men walking. He wanted these women to have a heart of compassion. He wanted these women who had a heart of compassion not to look at him as the object of it, but to look at themselves and especially their own children. For the consequences of the actions of the people of Israel would be deadly. 
for the sin of the nation of Israel would have consequences that would be deadly. It's an unfortunate truth, but we are often dragged by the choices of others around us. Even the righteous in Jerusalem would suffer underneath the sins of their fellow citizens of Israel as the Romans came and destroyed the city in 70 AD. Much like the citizens of Germany, Nazi Germany, suffered when the Nazis took over. Though I'm sure there were righteous Germans, they suffered underneath the consequences of what was brought upon them. We live in the United States of America, and today we should be worried. We should be worried about the downward spiral of our nation. It's heading towards a great destruction. While it's true we're along for the ride and there's not much we can really do about it, we should listen to the words of Jesus as he's told these women not to mourn for him, but to mourn for themselves in their impending death. We should mourn for those who will die in this unbelieving state we call the United States. Jesus didn't need to be mourned for. His life was safe in the Father's hands. And we don't need to be mourned for here because our lives as believers are safe in the Father's hands. These women needed to turn their affections and their focus inward rather than towards Christ. They faced an immediate problem, the destruction and the fall of the city that they knew and cherished. Now, as you'll recall, it was just one chapter previous to this in the same book of Luke that Jesus had wept over Jerusalem. You'll recall that he specifically stated that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed in just a short time. And in 70 AD, the armies of Rome swept in. Under the leadership of Titus, they surrounded the holy city and they placed it under siege. The end took almost a year to happen in which people turned into cannibals and began eating one another and their children. In the end, over one million Jews died at the hand of the Romans. Jesus warns them that they should be prepared for this day of judgment which was coming upon them. Weep for yourselves and weep for your children, for you will experience tribulation on this earth. Jesus says, you think what's happening to me is bad? Just wait. Just wait. Your universe is about to be turned upside down. He says, weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. Now understand, Jesus is not angry with anyone. He didn't have that ability to be angry at someone. Righteously, he could be upset with others, but he's not disrespecting these ladies in any way. He's asking them to think about what was really going on behind the curtains in Jerusalem. Understand their situation. If they did, maybe they could change it. If they didn't change it, they could weep for their situation. The point is that the judgment of God will fall upon you. That's what Jesus is saying to these ladies. It will not only fall upon them, but also upon the rest of the nation. This is called the first Jewish Holocaust, what happens in 70 A.D., His words also portend of another judgment that is coming. The judgment that will fall upon the Jews in the tribulation, which will be greater and nationwide. A few years ago, during the George W. Bush administration, 
Sue and I and our family visited the White House. We were waiting patiently for our turn to enter into the people's house when all of a sudden, secret service agents came running out and they were yelling, Run for your lives! Run for your lives! I'm not making this up. What does it mean to run for your lives? Now, let me say this first off. I didn't think it was very professional of them to do that. And I didn't think it was the best form of communication for them to use. I found it somewhat distressing. I found myself in this terrible conundrum, which depressed me further. For I just purchased a $4 cup of Starbucks coffee, and I needed to ask myself, do I really want to run for my life with this extra hot cup of cafe mocha in my grubby hands? I was faced with a choice. Talk about spoiling your vacation. Now I realize that the feds make a habit out of that and specialize in that kind of behavior. Anyway, Jesus speaks up here concerning their future and basically is saying, run for your lives. In verse 29, he says, Behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Now, the key to understanding this text and the meaning of the phrase, the days are coming, is trying to figure out what it's referring to. What days? Are these the days that are just ahead for Israel? Are these days just a few years off, or are these days a long way off? We find that same phrase is used by Luke in chapter 19 and verse 43 when he says this, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side. Obviously, that's a reference to this 70 AD when the city of Jerusalem is placed under siege and then destroyed, as I have said. But many prophecies in the Bible... This is what most people fail to understand. Many prophecies in the Bible have two fulfillments. There is a foretaste or an early fulfillment, and then there is a consummation or a greater fulfillment. This is the foretaste of judgment that is coming on the Jewish people. 70 AD simply foreshadowed the greater eschatological judgment that would fall upon Israel at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is then when he will judge the nation of Israel for rejecting him and they will go through the tribulation period and thousands upon thousands, nay millions of Jews will die and people around the world will die. So Jesus is predicting not only here an immediate day of judgment but of a divine fulfillment of this judgment upon the nation they will be held accountable for their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. As of right now, this day of judgment has not come yet. You might have thought that judgment was World War II. Who would not have thought that the day of tribulation had come when the Germans were annihilating people of all races and creeds, but especially Jews, the Jews. So Jesus is obviously functioning here not as the one who is being judged. Jesus is functioning here as the one who is judged. He tells them, your judgment is coming. Watch out. Run for your lives. In this text here, we learn that a woman's worth is determined in these days. Now, please 
be sure you understand that. Back in these days, a woman's worth was based on the number of children that she produced. If she was barren, she was believed to be cursed by God. A man's wealth was determined by the number of children his wife had because they could work on his farm. So in order to really appreciate the horror of these words that Jesus is uttering her, you have to understand the context in which it's delivered. It was a shame, it was a disgrace to be barren in Israel. But there is a divine reversal going on in this text. There is a divine reversal taking place here. Jesus says you will be lucky if you are barren during this time. Now the Lord alludes to several Old Testament texts and to one text that has not even been written as of yet. Two in the Old Testament and one in the New. When he uses the phrase daughters of Jerusalem back in the previous verse. For example, in Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, The Lord said, because the daughters of Zion, daughters of Jerusalem, are proud and walk with their heads held high and seductive eyes, and go along with their menacing steps and tinkle bangles on their feet. The point here is that in this context, the judgment will come upon the daughters of Jerusalem. Zion is a hill in Jerusalem because of their sinful behavior. A little farther on in the same text of Isaiah, the prophet warns the Jewish women again, saying, Rise up, you women who are at ease. They're lazy. And hear my voice. Give ear to my word, you complacent daughters. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled. O complacent daughters, for the, vin- for the vintage is ended, and the fruit gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent daughters. Strip, undress, put sackcloth on your waist. That's mourning. Beat your breasts for the unpleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of the people in which thorns and briars shall come up. Yea, for all the joyful houses in the jubilant city, because the place, palace has been abandoned and the populous city forsaken. Here we see exactly what's going to take place, predicted by the prophet Isaiah. Israel will be punished for their sins. This terrible judgment lies just ahead. They should be glad that Jesus is warning them. The women should be glad who are unable to bear children. They're barren because these children will only become a curse for them instead of the blessing that God meant it to be. They will cry out in pain. They will seek death or at least to escape it. We see this in verse 30 when it says this, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us! And to the hills, cover us. Obviously, this is a clear word picture of Mount Rainier being dumped on the city of Lacey, right? Kill us, destroy us, bury us alive. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 19, we see an allusion to this that Jesus makes. Men will go into the caves and the rocks and into the holes of the ground because the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesties when he arises to make the earth tremble. The people of Jerusalem will want to run to the hills, to the mountains for protection, to hide in the caves, or they will ask the mountains and the hills to fall upon them so that they can die quickly and painlessly. We find this same prediction in one of the minor prophets, Hosea to be specific, who we will begin to look at when we finish this book of Luke. There, Hosea writes in chapter 10 and verse 8, The sin of Israel 
will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. That's the temple. And they will say to the mountains, here we go, cover us into the hills, fall on us. The exact same phraseology. The pleading here is for the judgment of God to be escaped by having a quick death as the mountains and the hills actually move and cover the city. This is exactly what will take place to Israel during the Great Tribulation. When Israel is being judged by God, we see this clearly. This is not my opinion. This is found in the book that John the Revelator wrote in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15. He says there, using the same phraseology, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man will hide themselves in caves among the rocks of of the mountains. And they will say to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And the answer is no one. Here we see that same imagery being used of a foreboding and impending judgment. The same sense that is found in the prophets, the same sense of words that is found in Jesus is now underscored by John. All three texts are complete harmony with some minor variations that the city of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, will be punished for their sin. Let me ask you, do you think the people of Israel are listening? I think not. And neither does Jesus. That's why he tells this riddle, which I close with in verse 31. A riddle or a proverb, if you will. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This riddle is, for some, a bit difficult to interpret. I don't think it is. It was a saying of the day. You know, we have an apple a day keeps the doctor away. It was that kind of a proverb or a riddle. What this Riddle does, Jesus uses it, implements it as an argument to show the culpability of the Jewish people for their sin. It's a word picture. The truth is, the further the culture gets away from an agrarian lifestyle, the more difficult these kinds of riddles and proverbs that use farm illustrations become for us. What Jesus is doing simply is contrasting green, wet wood as not being fit to be kindled. It's not dry wood uh, that would be used for a fire. In these days, everything was cooked with wood. Houses were kept warm with wood. You sent the kids out to find wood, and you told them not to bring home the green, wet wood, only gather up the dry wood, which would burn. So we see that the point of the riddle is easily understandable in that terms. Jesus is saying to the addressed that... Um, something is being contrasted against the dry wood. The green wood is. So again, the key to understanding this phrase, this riddle, this proverb, is who are the they? If they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Who is the they? Is Jesus speaking about the Romans? Is Jesus speaking about the Jews or all human beings in general? 
Well, if you look at the commentators, they all have different suggestions. The idea here is if they do this to a living tree, what will happen to a dead tree? I think that moves the argument a little bit further. So if you understand that they're doing this to a living green tree, what will happen when the tree is dead or dry? It's obvious that the green tree is a simile, as Richard has said, for Jesus, while the dry wood represents Israel. The nation of Israel had been presented with the opportunity to continue to be a green tree as Jesus ministered on earth. He came and he was a blessing to them and he gave them the opportunity to embrace the kingdom. It should have been a time of growth, of blossoming for Israel during Jesus' ministry. Instead, the nation, led by their wicked leaders, rejected him and they became like dry wood. A dead tree is only good for one thing, the fire. And you know, fire is always representative of judgment in the scriptures. So Jesus quotes this proverb or riddle as an analogy of what the future holds for the sinful nation of Israel that has rejected him. He argues that if injustice is perpetrated against him as an innocent man in a time of peace, green wood, what will befall the city of Jerusalem in a time of war who are sinful, wicked, and evil people who have rejected God? If innocence meets such a wicked state, what's in store for the guilty? If the Romans treat him, who have admitted that he's innocent of all charges, what will they do to the Jews who are completely guilty? If the Jews cause this treatment of Jesus who came bringing them salvation, what will be their punishment for destroying him? That is what Jesus is asking them to consider. Weep for yourselves, not for me. Well, if God did not spare his own sin from such tribulation and permits him to be crucified in such a horrid manner, what will befall a sinful Jewish people that reject God when he unleashes his wrath and fury in the coming tribulation. Days of trouble, days of terror are coming for the nation of Israel and yet they continue to ignore it. The day is coming when childless women will be glad that they are so. Jesus says this destruction lies just ahead temporally for those that are alive now, but there will be a greater fulfillment for their children later on. It is because of the hardness of their heart and their response to him that he goes to the cross. It is because of their hardness of heart and their rejection of him that the kingdom of God has been postponed. It is because of their choices that the times of the Gentiles come to be and the age of tribulation will come to be for the nation as a whole and the judgment that they will receive. Well, how can we apply this difficult text to our lives? What does it mean to you and me as believers in the age of grace, in the age of the church, in the age of the Gentiles? I think one thing we should be very concerned about is, in our lives is the Jew. We should be concerned for the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. We should be doing all that we can to reach out to them. After all, the gospel is to go to the Jew first. When we think about the injustices that are done on this earth today, 
people executed wrongly for, for crimes they did not commit, Muslims killing Christians, all terrible things that happened across the world. We should remember that our Lord Jesus Christ was treated unjustly and that God will make all right when he is ruling on his throne in the thousand-year reign of Christ. We shouldn't think it unusual, after all, when injustice is perpetrated on innocent men. After all, that happened to our Savior. But the thing is, Jesus did it voluntarily. He wasn't forced to. He did it substitutionarily. He did it for all of mankind. That's what makes his death unique and different. That the Son of God died for us. He demonstrated for us the great truth that God will make all things right when he is the greatest victim of injustice. We can use him as a model for our lives when we are treated in such manner. We should not seek our own revenge. God will make all things right. He is to be the one who brings revenge on those who deserve it. So we should understand that though we are mistreated at times, We suffer no different than our own Savior did, and we should not seek to make others pay for their crimes, but we should trust in him. You know, we often sing songs in our church services and in our private times that God is good all the time. Do you really believe that? Do you really live it? Can Jesus sing that when he's being taken to the cross to being crucified for a sin he didn't commit for the sins of mankind that he had no part of. The Lord tried over and over to reach the Jewish people. He did everything he possibly could, and yet they kept on rebelling against him, pushing him away, and trying to kill him. Jesus never gave up, and neither should we. When we are rejected by others, we shouldn't give up. We should keep trying to reach them with the truth, no matter how much they hurt us say nasty things against us, or persecute us. We should submit to the will of God and not rebel against his truth, but we should believe it and live it. That's the mistake that Israel made. God wants people who will trust in him, despite the circumstances of life that they might find themselves in, good or bad. Jesus found himself in terrible circumstances, and he trusted his father. Many, I'm sure, face capital punishment unjustly, but they should trust in God who has a purpose for their lives and ultimately will make all things right. So no matter who we are or where we are, we can trust in the justice of God for he punished his son for the sins of mankind that he might bless those who believe in him, trust in him, and live righteously in this present world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth found in Scripture that we find nowhere else. The Word of God is inspired. It is true. It changes lives. Father, use it in our hearts and mind. Change us. Change our character to be like our saviors. Help us, Father, to be willing to endure unjust suffering, to be treated wrongly, to be persecuted, not for our sakes, not seeking out justice, but seeking out the favor of our God. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.